Bibles, take them and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, inside your sermon outline, inside your bulletin is a sermon outline with a number of the scripture passages I want to draw to your attention. And there under point number one, two readings from the marvelous book of Ecclesiastes. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? Well, we're not completely sure, but most people think it was King Solomon. King Solomon, the greatest king in the history of Israel. What does he say? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And down in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, listen to this. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem also. My wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my pleasure found, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then, I considered what all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So far the reading of God's Word. Today is our final study in a series of exploring God. We have been exploring God together. And we've been asking questions that surveys tell us as far as spiritual concerns across America and and Europe. Uh, these These are the top questions that everybody asks. For example, we explored the, the singular question, is there a God? Good question. And the number one question the next week, why does God allow pain and suffering? And then in our third week, we ask the question, is Christianity too narrow-minded? The next week, we explored the question, is Jesus really God? Then we looked at this question, is the Bible reliable? Hmm? Last week, Pastor Martin asked and answered the question, can I have a personal relationship with God? And today we conclude by asking the question, does life have a purpose? 
Good questions. Does your life have a purpose to it? The answer is yes. But the answer is not so simple. And I'll tell you why it's not so simple, why it's a, a difficult question to answer, because sometimes, sometimes, not just for Solomon, but for you and for me, we wake up in the morning and we say, what am I doing? And teenagers wrestle with this question too. I remember when I was 17 years old, a junior in high school, and in my world, I got to a place that was a rat race. And my alarm went off at 5 o'clock in the morning. Why would you get up as a teenager, 17-year-old, at 5 o'clock in the morning every day? Well, the answer is because I delivered newspapers. I had a job. I needed some pocket money. I delivered newspapers. But... I was also on the swimming team. And our coach was a disciple of the Marquis de Sade. And we had to be in the pool at 6.30. Cold water. Swimming is a winter sport. Cold water. 6.30 in the morning, you have to be in the pool after I've delivered the newspapers. And then first period is advanced physics. What in the world was a guy like me doing in advanced physics? That was crazy. And then after school, back in the pool, and then home, trying to figure out equations in advanced physics. And I woke up one morning, I remember it, clear as day. What am I doing this for? What's it all about? And some of the Older folks seated around you teenagers will tell you that question happens to us an awful lot on many mornings that we awaken as we rush into the rat race and get on the hamster wheel. And even though I was a cheerful teenager and I had lived, I had, a, I had a good life on the surface underneath. Underneath, well, my English teacher made us read the American philosopher Henry David Thoreau, and Thoreau said that the mass of mankind lead lives of quiet desperation. And this junior in high school said, that's me. Because every time I finish a physics test, there's another one right on its heels. And, and just this just was this... The sense of relentless striving, and what's the use? What's the purpose? And I had friends, but sometimes my friends were fickle and disappoint me. And then I disappoint my parents, and they get frustrated with me, and that was painful. And then the most important question of all, would there ever be a girl who would like me? Is there any purpose to my existence? Well, you're not the first person, John, to ask that question. We already heard from King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. He asked, does life have a purpose under the sun or is it just vanity? What did we learn about this fellow? Well, actually, we learned something quite remarkable about his life. Tell me if you would like his life. He said, I amassed a fortune in silver and gold. He has money. 
He's getting tributes from princes, kings, and provinces. That means he's a man of influence and power. He has got a harem of concubines. That means he is highly sexualized and he denies himself no pleasure at all. Money, sex, power at his beck and call. And then he's got Hollywood and Las Vegas. He says, I had singers, both men and women. All the best home theater you've ever seen. And then, get this. He says, and I enjoyed my toil. He actually had a job that he liked. Now, some of you like your job. Some of you hate your job. Solomon really liked his job. Great job satisfaction for Solomon. He has it all. And if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you see that sometimes he likes the distraction that it brings. But he says, when I looked carefully, when I thought carefully, when I looked at my future and my impending death, he said, it was all what? Vanity. Striving after wind. Surely we're not like that in America, right? Here on Strong Island. Long Island is Strong Island. You know, over a hundred years ago, the French writer Alex de Tocqueville, who loved America, who loved America, he came and he, he studied American culture. And, and he was rarely critical, but listen to what he said. He said, there is something surprising in this strange unrest of so many happy men, restless in the midst of abundance. So he's studying American culture, and he sees the wealthiest nation on earth. He sees uh, opportunity, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He admires all of this. He sees religious people. He admired that America was in many ways shaped by Christian virtues and Christian values. He admired it. But he said, I notice this. In the midst of abundance, there is such a restlessness in their souls. Why? Here's what the Tocqueville said. He said, besides the good things that he already possesses, he in every instant fancies a thousand other good things that death will prevent him from enjoying. And so he must try them soon. And he is filled with anxiety and trepidation at the fear of his impending death. I don't know if de Tocqueville was a Christian, but Solomon, if you go on in the book of Ecclesiastes down to chapter 9, and you get to chapter 9, he reflects on the common destiny of all humans. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. There's that phrase again. The same destiny overtakes all. This is Ecclesiastes 9.3. The hearts of men... Moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know 
they will die. And even the memory of them is forgotten. So back to Thoreau. The mass of humanity live lives of quiet desperation because they all know subconsciously, everyone knows they will die. And you add to that the prevailing worldview, the scientific worldview of atheistic materialism that your children learn in high school and in college. And when you are taught that your body is just a composition of random atoms bumping into each other by accident in an undesigned, purposeless fashion, and that you are simply the result of certain interesting biological consequences that evolved out of the primordial slime, you know, with Camus and Kafka and Jean-Paul Sartre, and all the despairing writers of the 20th century, you know that it's just vanity. And you're on a rat race, living to pay the bills, hoping to find a girl who will like you or a man who will love you, and trying to have some sort of significance in life. And in the end, it is vanity. The key to understanding what's going on is Solomon is telling us that if you live life just under the sun, under the sun... What does it mean for him to live under the sun? It means to live without reference to God, okay? In a materialistic worldview where there's just the sun. If that's all, then your life is in vain. But Solomon says, and the rest of the Bible teaches us, that you are made for something more than just life under the sun. You have been made by a purposeful God in the image of a purposeful God. And He gives you your purpose for life in this world. What is your purpose? Oh, the Bible has much to say about this, but what was most helpful for me as a new Christian are what I'm giving you in points two and three in your sermon outline, so please follow along with me. We're going to get some good education here today. So that you will understand when you wake up in the morning and the alarm is beeping, you've hit the snooze button twice already, why should I get out of bed? You'll have an answer. Point number two is this. God has given you a reason to live. First, it's called the cultural mandate. You see, all that Solomon was doing... With, with his getting money and his good work and, and having sex and, and all, all of these things, were they all had their origin back in the Garden of Eden when God created Adam and called him to build the world, to build a culture, as it were. Where do we find this? In the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. You know this? Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And what this teaches us and the other passages in Genesis teach us is that God created Adam who was in turn to create a culture in the Garden of Eden. And he and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply, to have children, 
and to raise their children to live in the presence of God and have dominion over the earth, okay? Now, follow this with me. What were they to spend their time doing? He was to engage in zoology because God wanted him to study and then name the animals. He was to engage in botany because God wanted him to cultivate and tend the earth. He was to engage in raising his children in education and engaging in in building what St. Augustine called the city of God. They were to be productive citizens in which they would build this world together. And oh, my friends, they were going to do this because, get this, they were made in the image of a creative God who brings order out of chaos. Get this, get this. The very beginning of the Bible, there's chaos. And what does God do? He speaks And he brings order to the universe. He's the creator. And he places inside Adam a desire to bring order out of chaos and to create and to govern and to tend and to raise. Isn't this beautiful? In the pristine origin of the world that God made. Listen, my friends, Adam is not sitting around on his barca lounger drinking beer and watching television. That's not what God made him to do. Adam is not lying in bed with his iPhone playing Candy Crush for hours and hours and hours. Adam is made in the image of God to create, to tend, to, to, in, in a magnificent way to build this beautiful city in the Garden of Eden. And every one of you, and here's the point, I've taken so long to say this, every one of you is made in the same image of God. You are a son of Adam. You're a daughter of Adam and Eve. Okay? And so that same impulse, that same mandate is given to you. When I was in fifth grade, they gave me a little tomato plant. Get a tomato plant in, a, in an eggshell container, you know, and take the tomato plant home. They gave Bill Melcher a lima bean, and uh, he, he was telling me about it. I had a lima bean, and you had to tend your plant and raise your plant, and there was purpose in what you were doing. There's that impulse inside of us to have dominion over the earth. And even the most menial task, even the most menial task, washing the dishes is what? is bringing order out of chaos. Folding the laundry, bringing order out of chaos. Raking the leaves, dare I say it. Shoveling the snow is having dominion over the earth. I I like to shovel snow. I do. I really like to shovel snow. Why? Because there's this sense in me that I'm going to have dominion over this earth that's fighting back against me, you see. I heard a woman say she didn't like that. She said, society tells you your purpose is to work and make money, and I think that's wrong, but I'm still trying to figure out what's right. Now listen carefully. Is work bad? No, work is not bad. Is making money bad? No, making money is not bad. 
But why was that woman sort of frustrated with this sense that that's what you got to do in life? Why was she frustrated? I'll tell you why. Because you got to read on to Genesis chapter 3. And what happened in Genesis 3? We call it the fall. The fall of mankind. And when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God cursed the world. There was a curse. He did not eliminate this cultural mandate, but it was cursed. And so we are told in the curse, you read this in Genesis 3, we are actually told that work became toil. Hmm. Toil, that kind of grind. You say your job is a grind. Work became toil. Childbirth. Most beautiful recreation, creation that God gave. Childbirth became painful. And tending my tomato plant would encounter thorns and weeds and it would work by the sweat of my brow and the dust would fight back and because of the curse, the dust would win. And I would die. So she was frustrated. Is that all there is? Is there all there is? You see, humankind is now Adam and with Adam and Eve expelled, vomited out of the Garden of Eden. And they look back to what they had and what they lost. And now they must continue in the howling wilderness outside the garden. But God preserves the world. He preserves the world. Why? He could have just destroyed it. But why does He preserve the world? Because He's going to redeem it. He's even going to redeem the cultural mandate. He's even going to give purpose again to your life as you get out into the workaday world, as you raise your children, as you tend the farm and you work in the factories. He's going to redeem this world. And most of all, because you're going to die and you face the judgment of God apart, uh, 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 naked before a holy God, He says in Genesis 3, I will send a Redeemer. And He sustains the world until the day that the angel announces to the shepherd, the shepherds you remember at Christmas, we read this, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Good news. The Greek word is gospel. I bring you the gospel. I bring you good news of great joy. For today in the city of David is born unto you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so God preserves this world in order to redeem this world and to reclaim a renegade planet. And this is the third point. You see, we have a cultural mandate that we still wrestle with and we we do because every impulse of creativity is still in your soul to have dominion over the earth, to pass your test, to shovel the driveway, to wash the dishes, to raise your children, to write music and enjoy good music, all of those things. But, But there's something greater than just living life under the sun. See, there it is again, under the sun. It's that... If life is just about the cultural mandate in this fallen world, then you are going to say it's vanity. It wasn't just vanity because it was hard for Solomon. It was because there was death and judgment to be faced. So, point three is this. 
God gave us a second mandate. And to make sense of your life, Christian, is to embrace this mandate as the most important mandate in your life, the, the gospel mandate, right? Cultural mandate, gospel mandate are the reasons you get up in the morning. What's this gospel mandate? Well, you could put it in many ways. I say it's this. North Shore Community Church, can it be in our DNA as Christian men and women fighting the good fight on Long Island, the gospel mandate, the gospel mandate is to be a disciple of Jesus and to be a disciple maker for Jesus. What is God commanding you to be? Be a disciple. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but will have everlasting life. And you know, when, when the, the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And Peter said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. I want to clarify something. It wasn't a suggestion it was an imperative. It, it wasn't just good advice. The summons of God to the world is come and believe. Have you done that? Have you heard the summons of God? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the good news. He is the gospel. He's the one God sent into this world. And embrace and receive the eternal life that Jesus gives and the abundant life that Jesus gives. He gives eternal life and abundant life. And it's so beautiful. For those of us, when I told you, I told you about waking up that morning, saying, why am I doing this? Getting out of bed so early to go exercise, to deliver newspapers, to take physics tests. I mean, it's, it's killing me. Why would I do these things? Well, you see, it's vanity unless you experience the abundant life that Jesus gives. He said in John 10, verse 10, there's thieves out there, men who will rob you and rob your soul. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came, Jesus says, that you might have life and have it abundantly. What is this abundant life that Jesus gives? Well, my friends, abundant life is the very life of Christ Himself shaped in you. In the, in the book of Romans, you see uh, there in Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The very purpose of God was to shape the life of Jesus in you. Even as you walk in the rat race of everyday life, He's shaping Jesus in you. And this is the abundant life that he has. Maybe you're here and you say, Preacher, why should I believe in Jesus? The answer is that God sent Jesus into this world as the second Adam. The first Adam failed in the Garden of Eden. He failed. But Paul calls Jesus the second Adam who came 
And at the end of his life, before he went to the cross, Jesus in prayer said to the Father, Father, I have completed the work you gave me to do. See, Jesus was a worker as well. We're going to explore this in the next couple of weeks. Jesus, Jesus came not just to live, but to work. And the work that he did was to live as a carpenter, for sure. Jesus gave dignity to the cultural mandate. He himself was a working man. But his work was even greater than that. His work was to accomplish all righteousness and to live as your substitute. To live as your substitute. To live the life you should have lived but has failed to live because you're in Adam and Adam failed to live. He came to finish the work and he said, I finished the work you gave me to do as your substitute. So he is now your Savior. Be a disciple of Jesus. Receive a eternal life, abundant life, the life of Christ, the virtues, the very life of Christ shaped inside you as you walk through the factories, as you go to school, as you are involved in the PTA. The abundant life of Jesus Christ pulsing inside of you. As you shovel the snow, what do you do? You do it all for the glory of God. The thief would steal and destroy you, but Jesus wants to give you abundant life. And then you become someone who shares that abundant life, and you become a, gospel, a disciple maker. You, you become a disciple, and then the gospel mandate, you become a disciple maker. Jesus said this before he ascended into heaven. Remember, we call it the Great Commission. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples, he says. And, and Jesus says, um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And you're sitting there and you're saying, What? Pastor John, are you telling me I have to go become a missionary to Africa? Because that's what the Great Commission is, right? Well, that's what it is for some people. That's a good thing, I suppose. But I hope you know better. To be a disciple maker, fulfilling the Great Commission, is something that you do on Long Island. It's something you do here. In your family, you are raising disciples. In your neighborhood, you are making disciples. In your home fellowship group, you are making disciples. Make disciples of Jesus. Who's in your life that you can encourage to grow? Who's encouraging you to grow in the abundant life that Jesus has? Don't just sit in bed playing Candy Crush. Don't just sit around watching TV and drinking beer. Be a disciple. And make disciples. That's the gospel mandate. And here's what ties it all together. Point number four. God invites us to glorify and enjoy Him now and forever. So I quoted 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you know, making lunch for your children, doing an assignment for your boss, going to the gym and working out, shoveling the driveway, planting a garden, 
writing a song, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God. Every morning when you wake up, there needs to be a yes in your heart. There needs to be a yes. Lord, I hear you calling me. You're calling me to fulfill the cultural mandate, but even more, you're calling me to fulfill the gospel mandate. Lord, here I am. We're going to sing this song in just a couple of minutes. Here I am, all of me. Take my life. It's all for Thee. Can you enjoy God? The chief end of man, to glorify God, but then enjoy Him forever. King David says, at your right hand is is fullness of joy. If you know God, there's joy in your soul. David said, delight yourself in the Lord. David said, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. This is the center of the soul, to know God. My friends, if any of these questions we have addressed in these past seven weeks has, has stirred you or you know someone, go to our website. Listen to the sermons again and again. Learn how much He's calling you to say yes to Him. Some of you feel frustrated. But there's no purpose in life. My heart goes out to you because I can relate to that as I've told you. But I want you to know today You are created to live in this world with purpose, to build this world, to make it a a better place by virtue of your existence here. And the gospel mandate is yours to go be a disciple and make disciples. I'm going to finish by playing you a short, short testimony of a woman who says that she used to think she was a throwaway. Her dad threw her away. And she had a friend. She calls it her Bible friend. Had a Bible verse for everything. I just want you to listen to her testimony. I had a friend in my life who I not so affectionately called my Bible friend. She was all the time giving me Bible verses. And honestly, it just <laughs> it got on my nerves. I thought, how could one person have access to so many Bible verses? Like, if I had a headache, she had a verse for that. But one day, she gave me this verse, and it was Jeremiah 29, 11. It said, for I, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And Gosh, I remember reading that verse and thinking, I thought my whole life that I was a throwaway person, so this verse doesn't really apply to me, but I read it over and over and over, and something just deep down in my heart started stirring, and I read the verse again and just put my name in it, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, Lisa, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you plans to give you a hope and a future. And for the first time in my life, I thought, maybe, maybe, even though I was a throwaway person to my real dad, maybe God looks at me a little bit differently. And maybe I should try this God thing. 
I didn't know the right words to say. I didn't know what to do. So I just lifted my hands up and I just said, yes, yes. And I guess not to make it oversimple, but I've pretty much just been saying yes to God ever since. And I think ultimately that's my purpose. Yes, every day when you wake up, say yes to your Savior, to have dominion over the earth, to be his disciple, and to make disciples. I've given you that Jeremiah 29 verse in your program, and maybe you can do like Lisa just did, go home and scratch out the word you and write your name in it, and every morning this week, warm your heart And know the plans God has for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this marvelous gospel. The good news, the angel shouted to the shepherds that a Savior has been born to us. He is Christ the Lord. And no longer do we just have to live a meaningless life under the sun in a rat race just to pay the bills. But you are calling us with the echo of our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam, to have dominion over the earth and that our work is noble and good. But it is not just under the sun. It is lived for you. And it is lived knowing you. We want to know you, Lord. So forgive us for our reluctance. Forgive me for my slowness to come to you, my pride, my self-sufficiency. If Solomon needed you, Lord, with all that he had, I need you too. So in this closing song, our Father, this will be our prayer. This will be our yes to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.